Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. This is the fourth and final part of our Misunderstood Texts About Jesus series with Bill Schlegel. In this episode, he offers remarks on Philippians 2, Colossians 2, and Revelation 1. After this, I ask him one of the biggest questions on this whole subject. If Jesus isn't God, then how can his sacrifice possibly pay for our sins? As usual, Schlegel points out that this is not a biblical question. Jesus never asked it, Paul never asked it, and John never asked it. If no one ever makes this point in Scripture, maybe we should wonder why our questions are so out of line with theirs. Stay tuned for the answer. Here now is Interview 46, Misunderstood Texts About Jesus, Part 4, with Bill Schlegel. Bill Schlegel, welcome back to Restitutio. Hey, Sean, thanks. Today, we're picking up where we left off, looking at some misunderstood texts about Jesus. And to begin with, we'll look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, which reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This, Amen. Yeah, it's a magnificent text, isn't it? It's sometimes called the Carmen Christi, the Song of Christ and uh, some scholars have suggested that due to its form and vocabulary that it may actually have been a quotation that Paul used in uh, making his overall point, which was that the Philippians should be like Christ, as it says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I don't, I don't have a horse in that race. I'm more interested here, Bill, in getting your take on the interesting part in verse 6 and 7, where it talks about being in the form of God. I'm sure you're aware the NIV translates that, mm. who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Mm. So how do you read this, and what's your thinking here? I would just encourage us all to, again, look at the whole context of this letter, and you might even say the whole corpus of Paul's letters. Will the Apostle Paul, in two three or four verses here in the middle of the book of Philippians. Is it even logical at all to think he's going to now slip in the perhaps foremost important theological understanding of who the Christ is? Is that really reasonable? Is that what Paul is doing here? Or could there be another way to understand these verses? Because these verses, as you know, as I know, and many other people have heard, to, to many people, Philippians chapter 2 is a slam dunk for the deity of Jesus. They don't see it any other way. They don't think there could be another possibility. Is that how you read it before, too? 
I would say yes, for sure. I understood this passage to be a setting aside of the second person of the Trinity, his divine attributes to become a human being. It is the very first passage that I went to when I began to understand that Jesus is a human Messiah, that God has exalted to his position in heaven at at God the Father's right hand. When I began to understand that, Philippians 2 is the first place I went because I started to think, okay, what about these other passages? The first one that came to mind, I had to go back and I, I say, okay, what's, what does Philippians 2 really say? And I came to understand it's not talking about this mythical scene where the deity are deciding, hey, we need to save mankind. How are we going to do this? And one member of the Trinity says, well, I'll do it. I'll go down there and I'll become man and I'll do what needs to be done. And then we'll finish this up and we'll save man. That's a mythical idea, but it's the idea that we bring to the text. And it's pretty difficult to get out of that mindset. I'll I'll say why. I can give an example of why. Uh, In my own personal experience, as I began to explain some of the understandings in the scriptures as I I see them to my wife. For her, Philippians chapter 2, she said, I I must have explained this to her 10 times. And she just couldn't see it. Finally, there was another article that she wrote or she read where she saw a picture of Jesus, the human Jesus, on a cross, dying. And somehow that, that made it snap for her. She began to see what this is really saying, that human Jesus on the cross. So I understand that this is a passage, and I began to share one time with my friend my understanding of this, and I think it was a oh an incomplete understanding. But even the little bit of different interpretation I had, my friend, he just he couldn't understand it. I was like babbling to him. So if you come at this, and this is the only perspective you've taken— Yes, I know it's going to be hard to shed that understanding, but I really think there is a better way to understand that. And, and put, I would say, put it a simple way, as concise as possible. I would say what we have here is Paul, in the context, he's telling them, he's telling the Philippians, on this earth, you humble yourself. We have the example of what will lead to glory. And the example of what will lead to glory is our Messiah. Now we have lots of fancy language here. The Greek is not so simple. You got words that are occurring only in this one place. But I believe that Paul is saying that now Jesus is in the form of God. Okay, you got a fancy Greek word here, morphe. Where does it occur? This is the one who is the image of the invisible God, like Paul says in Colossians in another place. He's using a little different language, probably with a little different uh, take on it, a little different aspect of who Jesus is. But when Paul is writing this, Jesus is the resurrected, glorified Messiah sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. Now, how did he get to that position? He humbled himself. And that's what Paul is saying in this whole context. He's saying, look, this is your mind. This This is what you have to do as well. Don't do anything from selfish conceit. But in humility, count others as better than yourselves. And he'll go on and give other examples of that exact mindset 
in the continuation of the chapter. Uh, he talks about Timothy, who everybody else looks after their own interests, but Timothy, he doesn't. He looks after interests of others and the interests of Jesus the Messiah. And Epaphroditus, this guy who almost died in service in the work of Christ. Okay, so there's your example. And this is what I believe what Paul is telling us here. You want glory? You want exaltation? Here's the path. Humility. Right. And I think we can see this in the writing, the exact same point, exact same idea in other places in Paul's letters, but as well in James and in Peter. Many times you can see the same ideas that Paul is talking about, be it humility, suffering, etc. on this age. See the same ideas in James and Peter. Let me flip over just a second sure. to James chapter 4. He's writing and saying, you want to be a friend with the world? You're going to be at enmity with God. In chapter 4, I'm looking at verse 4, for instance, okay? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then he says in verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's our word, humble. Submit yourselves to God. There, Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Paul says in the book of Philippians, there, chapter 2, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. And then verse 10, I'll skip down. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's the same message that Paul is giving us in Philippians. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So you have this whole same, the whole same idea, the same concepts. Humble yourself now, God will exalt you. Okay, but this is something that I would think everyone would agree on, that Christ humbled himself and that God had exalted him. How does this relate to, especially like the NIV translation that says he was in very nature God? How do you think about that line there? That translation is an interpretation. So you have to look at the Greek and to see what it says. And I don't think you're going to find another translation that says something like that, right? They're, they're interpreting the Greek sentence and words the way they want. You're talking about verse 6, who though... He was in the form of God. Yeah, what do you right? think that means, the form of God? This passage starts out with a present active participle in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, my translation I'm looking at puts that in a past tense. It's not past tense in the Greek. It's a present active participle. So I really think it's talking about the glorified Jesus, the risen from the dead glorified, exalted Jesus at his time that he's writing to the Philippians. Okay. So you have another description, like Paul says in another place in Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, if Paul was talking about, again, this idea of the God council sitting up there and deciding which one of them is going to become a man, he would never say something like he's in the form of God. He is God in that scenario. He is God. He's not just the form of God. In some ways, it comes down to where are these decisions of Messiah being made? Where and when? Is there a decision in heaven before he existed as a human being? Or is the decision or decisions that Messiah is making, are they being made on earth when he's a human being? That's the question, and I think it's the latter. These are the humility that Messiah shows us is when he's on the earth, when he's a human being. Why look for some other place? 
this is what Paul is clearly saying here. He's a human being. All these descriptions of he's found as a human being, being a human being. He takes the form of a servant when he's a human being. By the way, a Trinitarian commentary that I read not long ago, the commentator actually said verse 8, yes, that is the decision that Jesus makes when he's a human being. So he has to say that there are two decisions being made here. One, that God the Son decided voluntarily to give up the independent exercise of his divine attributes to become a human being. But then he sees verse 8 being found in human form. That means he's a human being. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So he sees there, oh, that has to be the human Jesus making that decision. In my understanding, all of this is the human Jesus making these decisions of humility and obedience. You see, obedience is a problem to interpret this passage in the Trinitarian way, because in the Trinitarian understanding, the Son volunteers to do this. He's not commanded to by the other parts of the Godhead. Paul is talking here about obedience. The Messiah Jesus, he, he was obedient unto death. Okay, obedience is not really a part of the the Trinitarian understanding. In some ways, there's a certain absurdity to the Trinitarian understanding of all this, because it's really a claim that God decided that he will become man so that God can die and God will exalt God again to be God. It doesn't make sense. There's a certain absurdity to it all. Well, that's the mystery, Bill. Well, let's not get into the mystery thing. That mystery, because, and because you see what it does. It just cuts off all conversation. It does. It, it's a conversation stopper. Anything else on this text? We certainly want to move on to uh, a couple more. I would say one other thing. I still remember the first time I heard somebody kind of interpret this passage and say that this is the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, voluntarily surrendering the independent exercise of his divine attributes to become a human being. Now, did you catch that? God the Son voluntarily surrendering the independent exercise of his divine attributes. Uh-huh. Now, I remember hearing that. I said, wow, that's very erudite. That's, <laughs> that's, that's something that a seminary or a university professor would say. And I, you know what? I was impressed. I should know that, I thought to myself. That's something that I'm going to say to other people. Just because it sounded very insightful, very, you know, kind of theological, but it's not biblical. <laughs> That's the only problem. <laughs> okay. There may be a comparison here with Adam being in the image of God. You know, Adam, the first Adam, decides he's going to become like God. This was the temptation. But Jesus is unlike, the, he's the second Adam, but he's unlike the first Adam that says, no, he's obedient, right? He's even obedient to death. There could be something there, because in a lot of ways, Maybe. Jesus is the second Adam. But I don't, I don't know if we have to go entirely that way. That is the attitude of mankind in general. Mankind is a descendant of Adam. That, that is the attitude. We want our own interests. But along comes the second Adam, means he's a human being, and he's different. right? He, he gives himself up for others. That's the issue with the first Adam, too, wasn't it? A lack of trust, which manifested as disobedience to resisting eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Whereas this Adam certainly did 
obey even to the point of death, even death on a cross. You can make that comparison. I'm with you, though. I, I don't see an explicit statement here about Adam. We know Paul's not shy about that. He he uses Adam-Christ comparisons. Romans in, 5, 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, and those other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last point just to mention here is uh, that in verse, verse 9, we see this incredible exaltation that Jesus is given the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If Paul stopped right there, this text would really be easily used by some folks to say that Jesus is worshipped as God here. But it seems like Paul is not leaving that option open when he adds the rest of it, and he says, to the glory of God the Father. So God's mm-hmm. exalting Jesus to the highest place in the universe, next to himself, but it's for his own glory. It's not so that he would take a position above the Father, but a, a position that is highly exalted, but it's, it's all for the Father's glory. So I, I don't yep. know, I think that really does help to, to clarify the whole thing. Verses 9 to 10 do not fit the Trinitarian interpretation of this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Jesus Christ is exalted by God. Jesus Christ has a God, like Paul tells us, many places. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus the Messiah. Many places Paul tells us that Jesus has a God. And here, again, God has highly exalted Jesus. So Jesus is not God. He's exalted by God. He receives his name. God bestowed the name upon Jesus. So Jesus received it from God. That Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I know for many American English speakers, when you say Lord, it, it gets confusing. You think that means God, but we know better than that. We're deep down, in, we know we have 10 lords of leaping in our Christmas song. We know that Lord doesn't have to mean God. It means a title of authority, and here it's the Lord Messiah, and he's above every other human being. Paul doesn't say that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God. No, we confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, exactly. All right, moving on then to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. I'll just back it up to verse 8. We read, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And so this text is sometimes used to make the point that, especially in verse 9, that Jesus is fully God, that he has the whole fullness of deity in his nature. And so this gets into the whole dual natures theory, the hypostatic union, that he's 100% God, 100% man at the same time. So how do you read this verse? Let's leave the hypostatic union out for just a second. Maybe we'll get into it later if we're going to talk about some other passages too. We can see pretty clearly what Paul doesn't mean by saying that the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily in Jesus. Because we have a very, very similar expression in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. In this case, it applies not to Jesus, but to the church, to the congregation of believers. I'll read Ephesians three nineteen that you might know the love of Messiah, which surpasses knowledge, 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, so if we're going to say that being filled with the fullness of deity, or the here in Ephesians 3.19, the fullness of God, means that you are God. That's what you want to say the claim is for Paul there in Colossians chapter 2. Then, this is the same person, this is Paul writing in Ephesians, then we have to say that the church is God as well, because the church is filled with the fullness of God. So that's not what Paul is saying. We can see as well that he is not saying that in Jesus all of God dwells bodily or all of the deity dwells bodily. Paul says in him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. It's the fullness that dwells in Jesus bodily. So you have to look and see what does Paul mean when he uses this word fullness in other places. And again, he uses it especially in the book of Ephesians, I think three or four times. What it means, what I think you can see it means, to be filled with the fullness of deity, just as he said the, the congregation, the church is, it means to experience all that God has in store for humankind. Everything that God plans for mankind finds its fulfilling, its fullness, its fulfillment, might say, or its completeness, its abundance in Jesus the Messiah. And by the way, it's not in an abstract, kind of mystical or immaterial way, but this is, this is very important. It's bodily, okay? Right? It's bodily. Paul says that all the fullness of God, the full blessing of God, the completeness of the plan of God for mankind is experienced bodily in, by, and through Jesus the Messiah. A real, physical, human body. Now, I think that's important because in, in some ways, probably Paul is already maybe wrestling with some of these proto-Gnostics, theories that want to say that it's not a real body. You know, he had some other, he's not just a human being. But Paul is saying, uh-uh, our hope, the plan, the fullness of God, the full plan of God for us is in the material bodily world. Now, that for the Greek mind, uh-uh, we don't like that. Why? Because we tend to think that this world and our bodies are, are evil, they're corrupt or something. But Paul is saying God has done it through a human being bodily. The, the plan that God has for us, it's coming to its fullness in Jesus the Messiah. Yeah, I, I think that's a really great parallel you have there to Ephesians. And it's, it's really quite a statement. All the fullness of God. I mean, that's what we're told to pray here. Mm-hmm. That's what Paul prayed for the Ephesians, is that they would be filled with all... The, I would not dare to pray that, Bill, <laughs> mm-hmm. if it weren't already in the Bible. Hmm. But, uh, that's what he says, and it's exactly the same words in Greek, you know, the word for all, the word for fullness. Hmm. The only difference is God versus deity. Deity, yeah. We know that that's a distinction without much of a difference, because in Colossians one nineteen we read, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I don't so, think God is in that passage, actually. It's not in the Greek. It's an interpretation, if I'm not mistaken, in unless there's Colossians a variance. 119? In, in 119, yeah. I think it's just all the fullness. Oh, you're right. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't yeah. say God in the Greek. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's funny. But it's, it's the same idea, though. There's no doubt about it. It's the same idea. It's the fullness. Okay, back to the church, the fullness of God. You might even say that's even greater than the fullness of deity. But you can see it in the next verse, in Col- back in Colossians 2, in verse 10. Where he says the fullness of the deity dwells bodily in Jesus, and you have come to fullness of life in him. 
So he's applying the same thing to us as he is to the Messiah. It's through the Messiah, of course. I uh, appreciate the text in 2 Corinthians 5.19 where it says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Uh, Or another way to translate that, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There is this sense in which, uh, that also Jesus said at the Last Supper, that when you see him, you see the Father who is in him that uh, it's it's him doing the works, him speaking the words, and so on. So mm-hmm. I really do see this indwelling aspect via the, the Spirit, or however you want to d- describe it, as being a defining characteristic of Christ's ministry, that he, that he did have God dwelling within him. Anything else on this one? Let's go on. All right, moving on then to Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And uh, looking at Revelation 1, 17 to 18, we can read, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the key of death in Hades. So this whole idea of Jesus being called the first and first the last. And, the last. Mm-hmm. and then in chapter 2, verse 8, once again, He says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. This, we know from chapter 22, is a title that is ascribed to God. I am the Alpha, chapter 22, 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the, the argument goes that Jesus has this title being the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Therefore, Jesus is identified in the book of Revelation, as being God. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you read these verses? Okay, well, I would say this first. Again, just like with any other verses that we look at in the Scripture, it's important to understand the whole context, the broader setting of the book of Revelation. Let's not just take one verse here and one verse there and make a whole theology out of that one verse without looking at the rest of the book and rest of the context. The book starts out by telling us that Jesus is not God. In the very first verse, the revelation of Jesus the Messiah, which God gave him to show to his servants what must soon take place. Okay, And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So in the very first verse, we learn that Jesus is not God. God gave Jesus this revelation. This is important because in my Trinitarian past, I, I didn't have the right understanding of the position of Jesus. He is the human Messiah exalted at God's right hand in heaven. This is it's said over and over again in the scriptures, but for some reason we just don't understand it. Instead, when we think of God as a Trinity, I'll ask you, Sean, what's the definition of the of the Trinity? Three persons in one essence. Okay. Now, where is the human Jesus in that description? He's subsumed somehow, right, into one of those persons. The human Jesus is just, he's left out. He becomes unimportant in the Trinitarian definition of God. Now, you say that and they'll say, oh, yeah, okay, then, you know, right now you you get a secondary explanation. Well, okay, yeah, you know, the the human Jesus is is in there somewhere, but most people don't, don't really picture it that way, okay? The biblical description is the one true almighty God, the Ancient of Days, who's created everything, who has exalted the human Messiah, to his right hand and given him authority, given him the authority to represent him in a lot of ways. 
So now I can understand that first verse when I read, this is the revelation of Jesus the Messiah, which God gave him. Don't forget, this is the exalted Jesus, okay? He has a God, the exalted Jesus. That in the Trinitarian world is hard to figure out. How does Jesus have a God? Very first verse of the book of Revelation says it. It looks like, too, in this verse, this sort of chain of command here, that there's subordination, where instead of Jesus originating the message, it's God who originates the message and then gives it to Jesus, who gives it to an angel, who gives it to John, and so on. Whereas you would think, okay, everyone recognizes Jesus is subordinate in his flesh after the incarnation, right? But there's a subordination that continues in his heavenly role, which Hmm. is really uncalled for if there is co-equality between the members of the Godhead. Furthermore, we can see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, where the Apostle Paul talks about the end, and that Mm -hmm. in the end, he will always be subordinated to the one true God who is going to be all and in all, whereas he he won't have the supreme status for all eternity. Mm-hmm. So, yep. I mean, those are really strong points. I, I would say an argument against the traditional idea of co-equality and mm-hmm. so on that goes in this, Absolutely. along with this Trinitarian baggage. Yep. Back in the book of Revelation, the first verse is not the only place where we learn that Jesus has a God. Verse 5 of chapter 1, and from Jesus the Messiah, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. Okay? Let's take the whole book. Don't ignore what the writer has already told us, that here's the description of Jesus. He's a faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. God is not going to die ever, but Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And he's the ruler of the kings of the earth, and he's freed us from our sins and made us a kingdom priest to his God. So Jesus has a God. Also, let's look at a couple other verses in the book of Revelation. Chapter 3, verse 2. Jesus tells us four times that he has a God in one verse. He's speaking to the church in Philadelphia. He says, he who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. This is the exalted Jesus in heaven now saying this. He has a God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. Do we need to keep hearing this? The new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven from my God out of heaven. So the whole of the book of Revelation tells us that Jesus is the exalted, glorified Messiah that, and he's been glorified by his God. Also, we can see the same kind of idea in the worship of the Lamb, who is pictured in chapter 5. And he's given honor, and he's bowed down before, not because he's God, as in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is the Almighty, the Ancient of Days, who's created everything. He's honored as God. Chapter 5 is the Messiah, Jesus like a lamb standing who had been slain. He's given his life, and he's honored because of giving up his life. And it says in verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood did ransom men for 
God. So this is why the Messiah, the Lamb, is honored in chapter 5. Not because he is God, but because he has ransomed men by his blood. That's a human being. Yeah. By his blood for God. Yeah, it's notable that they don't praise him for being the creator or Pantocrator, you know, the Almighty, these kinds of appellations that we find in chapter 4. Furthermore, I find it fascinating that chapter 6 doesn't have a exaltation of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you have the Father, then you have the Son, chapter 4, chapter 5. How come the next chapter the Holy Spirit doesn't get a little praise? Yeah. Um, but uh, the Spirit is completely missing, as if the Spirit is not an independent personality within the Godhead. Uh, which mm-hmm. is precisely our, our thesis here. So Revelation is holding the line, <laughs> is what you're saying yeah. here, yep. as far as distinguishing between God and his exalted Messiah. What about this title, though, the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega? We see it there in chapter 1 that it refers to the Lord God. Chapter 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha, the Omega, says the Lord God. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, how is it that Jesus is going to use this title? In chapter 1, verse 8, this is the Almighty God speaking. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega. It says very clearly, it says, the Lord God, okay, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, what most Trinitarians will do with this passage is they'll, they'll want to say that because you have the words first and last applied to Jesus, that those are the same words, they'll say, that describe the Almighty God, Jehovah, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 6. In 48:12, where the prophet, the Lord through the prophet Isaiah is saying, "Look at Israel, there's no other God." He says, "It's I am the first and the last, and there's no other God beside me." I think it's kind of somewhat ironic that uh, people want to appeal to Isaiah to say that there is a second God or a second person in the Godhead, when right in the same verse where it says, "I'm the first and last," there is no. Is, is there any other God beside me? No, the answer is in Isaiah 44, 8 and Isaiah 44, 6, the same verse. There is no other God beside me. I'm the first and last. There's none other. The argument is something like, look at those terms were applied to Jehovah God Almighty in the book of Isaiah. And here they're applied to Jesus. So Jesus must be God. I would say a couple of things about that claim. First of all, is this a New Testament argument? Is the Paul the apostle making this argument? Is John, Jesus is the first and the last. That means he's Yahweh. Is that argument being made in the New Testament? The answer is no. So a person should find out there, what's the source? Where did that, where's that argument first being made? Another thing to say about that is it's sort of this, the claim is certain characteristics or qualities of God Almighty are in the Messiah. So that would make the Messiah God. A uh, fancy theological way to describe this is divine identity Christology. If the quality is the same in the Messiah as it is in God, then he must be God. Well, it, that fails because it fails to take into account the idea, idea and concept of agency, a very important concept in the Bible, where God gives qualities to people as his representatives. And the Hebrews know this. The Hebrews know that a prophet can raise the dead. Very interesting. A prophet comes and raises the dead in the Jewish Hebraic world. They don't think that that prophet is God, right. even though he has the, he has the ability to, that only God has, let's say, to raise the dead. Now, very interesting. What happens when you take somebody who raises the dead or 
heals the lame is a good example too. What happens when somebody comes into the Gentile world and heals the lame man? Remember what happened with Paul? They said he's Zeus. He's God. That's the Gentile ground. That's a Gentile kind of way of thinking. And I think if if the, the characteristic or quality of God appears in a human being, he must be God. It's not in the Jewish world because God has agents. Moses can part the Red Sea. We know it's not really Moses. God did it through Moses. Moses was God's agent. But I don't think that's what's going on here in this particular passage. Just because Jesus is called the first and last, that he's like God's agent. I don't think that's not what's going on here. Okay. I think what's what going, do you on going on here is something different. First of all, the language is different in Isaiah than it is in the book of Revelation. Even though in the English it's similar, you say the first and the last. You know, Jesus says, I'm the first and the last in the book of Revelation. And in the English translation, you have an Isaiah 44 and 48 where Yahweh says, I'm the first and the last. So it sounds similar in English. But when you do a word search, for instance, on the word last, it's not there. In the Greek version of Isaiah 44 and 48, it's not there. It's not, that word last is not there. Interestingly enough, the only other place that pops up that I saw where the, the word for last here is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, where, strangely enough, Jesus is called the last man, right? He's the last man. The last, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last man, or the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So, let's see if there, is there a better way to understand what Jesus is saying when he calls himself the first and the last. In the places that this occurs, that we just read, in verse 17, notice it always occurs when he talks about himself being the one who's been dead and is now alive. He says in verse 17, uh, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. See that? It's in the context of him dying and now being alive. I'm the first and the last. I died, and now I'm alive. The same thing with Revelation 2.8. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So I think what Jesus is saying here is that he is the firstborn from the dead. Just as it says back there in chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is the Messiah, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. This is how he's first. He's the first human being to experience this exaltation into life immortal. That's how he's the first. Now, what does it mean that he's last? We have that phrase in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, the same one where Paul says he's the last man. How can he be last? Well, it's a good question. By his death and resurrection, there's a sense in which the work is completed. He's going to be the one through whom everybody else receives life in the age to come. Just like with Adam, the first man, Adam, we all on this earth right now, we all are dependent We all have life because of Adam, every single one of us. The parallel is with the last Adam, right? Just as Paul says, he's the last man. We will all, anybody in the next age, will only have life through Jesus Christ. Just as the way we have life now in this age through Adam, we will only get life through Jesus Christ in the age to come. 
we will know when we're people that are in the in the age to come, we will know that our life started with Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's an interesting phrase there, because like in verse 17, Revelation 1.17, it says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Mm-hmm. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I wonder if there's a sense with last, like I'm the final, you know, completer of this whole thing, or maybe... I think so. Like he's the initiator think, and yep. the conclusion of yep. the salvation process. We need no other man to do more. Yeah, so you, right. don't, you don't need, like, Muhammad to come along and mm-hmm. give a new prophecy, yep. right? I mean, he is mm-hmm. the, the final He's the prophet. completion. Not that there couldn't be other prophets, you know, Agabus and whatnot, but he is the, the final one as far as salvation goes. And I think even in other ways, too. I think those are the main ways. But another way that Jesus is last, he's the last of the kings descended from David mm. because he rules or he will rule on the throne forever by virtue of an indestructible life given to him by God the Father. So in that way, he's last. So same thing, if we're going to come at this passage with our preconceived ideas and push it down, push those preconceived ideas, we're going to find them in the book of Revelation no matter what. Okay, we're going to find them. But if that means we've got to ignore the fact that Jesus has a God. God gave him this revelation that he was dead and that he's the firstborn from the dead. All these things. But there may be other ways, better ways to understand the, the fact that Jesus is the first and the last. To interpret it as a divine title is not only to violate the, the clear message and Christology of the book of Revelation, but it is also to really import an assumption here, uh, the assumption of Jesus' deity without necessarily proving it from this. And you're not advocating one particular interpretation here. You're saying, well, it could mean a few different things, but I don't see that it has to mean this other way of taking it that is maybe traditional among Christians today. And I think it's a better way to understand because Jesus says right there, he's the first, he was firstborn, right? And it's always, it's in the context of him dying and being alive again. That's how he's first and last. That's the very context right within the same verse where the phrase occurs. Yeah. I, I take Revelation twenty two thirteen, where, again, there's a statement that I, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and last. I take that as God Almighty. Okay. It's the parallel to, to 1, 8. It's not so simple to figure out who's speaking right. in there's that a lot back of part in Revelation. Of speakers yeah. there yeah. in that last chapter. Yeah. So you're saying that verse 12 then, chapter 22, verse 12, would refer to Jesus. Chap- uh, verse 13 would be God. And then verse 14 is just a general statement of the narrator, of John. And then back to Jesus in verse 16. And then the Spirit speaks of verse 17. So it's like a lot of mm-hmm. different uh, switching around of who's speaking. And if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, of course, they're going to assume that Jesus, they're going to collapse Jesus and God into the same speaker, and that can uh, be very misleading mm-hmm. for us. It's always good to keep in mind that the publishers are not inspired by God. Uh, they're just doing the best that they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we have to figure out the rest. I don't think necessarily that Revelation twenty two twelve is Jesus speaking, because all the idea of God Almighty coming as well with his recompense is a, a prominent theme. So it's a question of determining who's the speaker, and of any one verse back there in chapter 22, it's not so okay. simple. And yeah, I think that verse 13... Point. Like yeah. Zech- the Zechariah prophecy yeah. and whatnot. All right, so let's let's move on then to our last topic for today, which is uh, the very easy, simple, uncomplicated subject of the atonement. 
and uh, that's sarcasm there. The idea is that the Son of God had to be God in order for his sacrifice to pay for our sins. And this is an idea that's been promoted throughout church history, at least uh, since the time of Anselm of Canterbury about a thousand years ago. But it's something that is very much alive and well in people's hearts today, whether Catholic or Protestant, where when you start talking to them about this subject, you might start making sense. And they might start saying, oh yeah, I guess it is kind of awkward that we say that the Trinity is here because there's no clear verse or chapter or even book of the Bible that describes the Trinity, or maybe you make some progress in other places looking at how Jesus is subordinate to the Father, in fact, his whole life through, and then even in his heavenly role. Then they'll come back and say, but I can't, I can't go with you, Bill, because if I accept what you're saying, then my salvation is at risk, because if Jesus isn't God, then his sacrifice is not going to cover my sin. How do you, how do you deal with that kind of an objection? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing I would say is that this is a philosophical argument. Is that described anywhere in the Bible, the Old Testament or the New Testament? Can you show me in the scriptures where it says that the sacrifice for my or your sin has to be God? Let's wait. Can anybody find that? You're relentless in this particular strategy. <laughs> like Every time I okay. ask you a question, you're like, well, does the Bible ever make that point, Sean? No, you're well, right. It doesn't okay. make that point. <laughs> and see, we can be thankful for the Reformation that said sola scriptura, right? right. This is where we're supposed to find our theology from the scriptures. We don't push our theology into the scriptures. So you you just said that this theory found popularity with, I don't remember the guy's name, about a thousand years ago. So is that going to be your source for understanding the nature of the atonement? If, if it is, well, be careful. Maybe we don't quite have it right. So what is the biblical description of the atonement, the necessity for atonement? Is it this idea that you had to have God come and take human form and therefore have two natures? fully man and fully God. I mean, what is it? It's just, it becomes absurd if you have to do that to create your theory for atonement. Something is wrong. You're leading to absurdity. You're leading to theological dead ends by saying he has to be a God-man. Again, where is that in the scriptures? Show me a verse where it says that my sacrifice must be a God-man. Is it in the Bible? Is this so-called hypostatic union that we have to use Greek terms to define two natures being necessary? Is that what the scriptures say? Did Paul give us a whole chapter or two in the book of Romans saying, look, here's why Jesus has to be both God and man. Is, Is it there? Does Peter do it? Does Jesus himself do it? Does Jesus ever say, I'm half God, half man, or fully God, fully man? The simple answer, the clear answer, is no. Again, it's just like the theological absurdities continue and continue in this thing, this idea. We need God to make a sacrifice for our sin. Does that mean God died? Yes or yes, no? Yes, yes. God I would died. have to say yes. Well, then you're a heretic from the oh, Trinitarian man. world. Okay. <laughs> even, though, even though, Sean, you're right. 
I've talked to some of my former friends, and they're backed into that position where they've got to say that God died. Why? Because they said he has to be God to atone for my sin. So you get backed into this terrible theological corner where now you're starting, you're going to say that God died wrong. The Trinitarian theory of this hypostatic union of two natures in Jesus refutes itself. On the one hand, you say it must be God to atone for our sin. But on the other hand, God didn't die. So Jesus didn't have to be God after all. If God didn't die, then Jesus doesn't have to be God. So what's the problem with saying that God died? Because I, I would say that that's probably a common understanding out there in Christendom that God died for our sins. And by death, we mean that his human body stopped breathing. You know, obviously God's mind continued living on, but he experienced a human death. What's wrong with that way of thinking about it? He experienced a human death. You just split. You just said God didn't die, right? What's wrong? Let's go back to the scripture. God is immortal. The only wise God, immortal. He doesn't die. God cannot die. And even from the perspective of the theological world in Trinitarianism, God doesn't die. If you're going to say he does, wow, we've got a huge, huge problem here, and you're going to have a huge, huge division. I'm sure you'll have all kinds of disagreements as to that statement. Here, and that's it. This thing leads to just total contradiction. You've got this two-being, two-nature Jesus. Let's ask these questions. Let's ask Jesus, were you born in around 0 AD in Bethlehem? Yes, the human Jesus will say, I was born in Bethlehem. No, the divine Jesus, I was eternally begotten, whatever that means, before creation. So you can answer yes, and you can answer no. Did you come into existence in the womb of Mary? The human Jesus? Yes. The divine Jesus or the God Jesus? No, I've always been in existence. I've always been in existence. And come to that question, did you die? Most Trinitarians will say of the divine Jesus, the, the deity Jesus, no, I didn't die. But the human Jesus, yes, I did die. Were you created? Human Jesus? Yes, I'm a created human. God, Jesus, no, I'm uncreated deity. How did you perform miracles? The human Jesus, God, my father, did miracles through me. But the divine Jesus, I did miracles because I am God. So you have all these contradictions. It becomes, it becomes very, very absurd. Did you grow in wisdom and knowledge, Jesus? The human Jesus, yes. Divine Jesus will say, don't be silly. I'm God. I don't grow in wisdom and knowledge. Do you know the day or hour of your return? Human Jesus? No. Only my father knows that. The divine Jesus or the deity Jesus, you're stuck in a sense. In, in a lot of ways, this is making Jesus into a liar. When the person Jesus said, I don't know the day or the hour of my return, only my father, only God, when he says my father, only God knows that. Believe in that's what he said, right? We take, I take the words of Jesus and I believe him. I don't want to tell Jesus, well, Jesus, I know that you're really only saying that in your human part, but in your divine part, you must know that. Jesus, when you told me that the Father is greater than you, who's greater than all, I know that's only your human part, Jesus, because I know you're really co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. 
I'm going to tell Jesus, I don't believe you. I'm, I'm, I'm really saying, Jesus, you're a liar. This hypostatic union thing is a philosophical nightmare, and it's not in the scriptures. So I think there's a better way to understand what the Bible is telling us about the necessity for a sacrifice for our sin. We can go to the scriptures. There's no doubt about it. Paul, many other places, says that we need a substitutionary death for our sin. We were estranged. We were without God. But now he has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. There is no talk about a divine Jesus. This is a human Jesus. He has a body of flesh that died. The one who knew no sin, he made a sin offering for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We need a high priest. In some ways, we need to go back and see what is the idea of atonement in what we'll call the Old Testament, in the the Hebrew scriptures. It's the necessity of blood and death. This is the, it's the material, it's the flesh world. And yes, that animal becomes a substitution for us. The hands of the high priest are placed on the scapegoat, for instance. And he bears the sin of the people away. But the necessity was for that death. It's really the punishment. He bears the punishment for our sin. So that's where, this, this is, we, we can't just forget the Old Testament process of atonement and sacrifices. 1 Timothy 2.5, can Paul be any clearer that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus, the Messiah. He's a priest and he's going to make a sacrifice. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus, the Messiah. Now, Paul didn't say the God-man, Jesus, the Messiah. That's not the mediator. Let's stick with the Bible. What does the Bible say? The Bible does not say we need a God-man priest mediating between us and Almighty God. This is some later concept that people make up. I think, Sean, and and you can make comment and and understand this better. Somehow, it's the prevailing idea of our mankind's total depravity that's led to this theory. Where we think, okay, we are all stuck in sin. So if we're going to have a sufficient sacrifice, it must be something other than us Mm, that comes greater than us, right? So that now we have somebody who's greater than us. What if that idea of this total depravity is warped? What if it's wrong? Then all of a sudden, the necessity for a divine sacrifice is going to fall away. And the scriptures are so clear. There is, there's no discussion in the scriptures whatsoever about Jesus' necessity to be God, to be a sufficient sacrifice for us. If God tells us, here is my son, if God says that the sinless Jesus is sufficient His death and resurrection is sufficient to pay the penalty, to bear our sins. Are we going to tell God, no, God, I need something more than that? 
your human Messiah is not enough for me? Mm. Is that the position that we're going to take? Right, that's being ashamed of Christ, isn't it? It's the spirit of Antichrist. You know, there's a li- let me give you a little metaphor. I think that maybe this could somewhat be helpful because this whole idea of our total depravity, which you know as well as I do, it comes mostly from later, somewhat er- some earlier probably ideas of Platonic ideas and the the evilness of matter and our own situation. And then uh, as Augustine forms these things and says that we're we're nothing but sinners, and you know, how could Jesus be a sinless man sufficient for our sacrifice. There's a a little league baseball team, 12-year-olds. They couldn't win a game. They just, they they couldn't win. They tried everything they could. They couldn't win. But then they brought in a ringer. He was a major league baseball player. He's the pitcher, okay? So now, all of a sudden, they got a major league baseball player. He's a pitcher, and the other teams cannot score a run on them. They're winning. They're winning with this guy. The major league baseball pitcher, because nobody, 12-year-olds can't hit him. And when he gets up to bat, you know, he's, he hits a couple home runs. So these, the team is winning all the time by about four to nothing. No team against them can do anything. They won. How did they win? They brought in the ringer. They couldn't do it by themselves, right? Their level, they just couldn't do it. They got the Superman. They got the ringer. And that's a little bit what Trinitarian is, is trying to tell me, that God brought our salvation by bringing in a ringer. And we don't like ringers. It's not fair. We don't like them justly so. We know it's not fair. This is a little bit what Trinitarian is trying to tell me I need. They're trying to tell me I need a ringer, somebody that's beyond our human existence. The scriptures are saying exactly the opposite. There's one God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus, the Messiah. I think what we see in the scriptures, though, is that, uh, you know, with the description of Adam, first Adam, second Adam, that we were reading earlier, that what we have here is a representative human being, the quintessential man, the one who does right what the, the original humans did wrong. And when we look at the various sacrifices throughout the Bible, they're never, God never insists that they're equal in value. Uh, there's not an ontological calculation between a goat and the entire people of Israel mm-hmm. when the the goat was killed on the Day of Atonement or the other one was sent out into the wilderness, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, And yet it worked. What makes a sacrifice work? It's that God accepts it. Mm-hmm. God sets the rules. God accepts it. And... This is his show. You know, this yep. is his way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I do believe that Christ had to be sinless, and mm-hmm. I think Hebrews makes that point pretty clearly. But other than that, this is what God has ordained. We can nitpick it and get our calculators out and uh, put every, all the sins on the one side and uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the other. Uh, but, you know, if God says that that's what works, then we are to trust that he yep. knows what he's doing. That's the essence of grace, isn't it? And, and yeah. mercy and forgiveness, that if you insist on exact retribution, then you don't have forgiveness anymore. You don't have grace. You just have justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't want to get into all the theories and uh, penal substitution, satisfaction, and so on. Um, we're not trying to be controversial here in that sense. But what we are trying to say is that this this notion within Christianity that 
unless Jesus is God, I'm still in my sins and I'm damned. This is, this is not biblical. Even though maybe we don't totally understand uh, the, the way it works, you know, we've got representation and some of these other theories of atonement that you mentioned briefly, where you can have a representative that in God's eyes then be, it becomes a satisfactory uh, justice. Right, if it's one goat for the sins of the people, or even the king, the king can be a representative of the people, right. or the priest is the representative of the people. So there's there's ways that I think it can can be understood better. But here here's the challenge I would make: is even though we may not we may not understand exactly how it works, and maybe maybe not even the sinless sinlessness of Jesus, how how that is, because I as a it's very clear in the scriptures that he was sinless. Even though we don't understand the sinlessness of Jesus, we don't need to go to the theory of the hypostatic union. It just is, it's an absurd theory. It really is. There must, there has to be a better way. If you don't, if you don't want to simply take what the scriptures say, that Jesus, by his blood, this human being, by his blood, by his death, like the scriptures say over and over again, we read some of them today. He's purchased the people for God by his blood. That's what it says. But if you do, if you can't somehow get over the idea that, uh, you know, he, uh, how, how did that work? He has to be a greater one. Don't go to the hypostatic union. I mean, it's just, it's an absurd idea. It creates so many additional problems. It's so unbiblical. There's no place in the Bible that says that Jesus is a God-man. It's just not there. All right. Well, that's all we have time for today. Did you have any last uh, concluding remarks? Appreciate it, Sean. It's good talking with you. Yeah. Great thinking about these yeah. things. May the Lord use it for blessing. All right. Thanks for tuning in. As usual, I've got a number of links in the show notes for this episode for you to learn more about Bill Schlegel and his book, The Satellite Bible Atlas, as well as his blog and YouTube channel. Well, we've had a number of comments in from previous episodes. Uh, Mike Philibert writes on part one of this series on misunderstood texts about Jesus. Brothers, that was excellent. It makes so much sense. Bless you both. Kim Magnuson writes in and says, thank you for your research and explanation. As a former Trinitarian, I really find it quite odd that the idea of the Trinity, as is used today, ever got off the ground. And he goes on from there. Brandon Duke writes on Facebook, Is it just me, or do you all find this series to be a tour de force with the one-two punch of Schlegel and Finnegan? As I engage with Trinitarians, this series is going to be the absolutely first thing I refer them to. Thanks to both of them for sitting down and recording, sticking their necks out, and sharing the fruit of their studies. I hope other BUs will use this and more than just a refutation of Schlegel's critics and use it as an evangelism tool. Any Christian that is committed to grounding their beliefs in Scripture is going to have to deal with the points made here. I love it. One last point. How many Christians in a thousand have an awareness of the scholarship on these contested verses? I bet we can find polling data to back it up, but my guess is one in a thousand. This information needs to be in front of Christians for their consideration. One last time, thanks, Bill and Sean. Well, thanks, Brandon, Kim, and Mike for writing in. Appreciate the feedback. If you would like to add your voice to the mix, you can go to restitudio.org and leave a comment on Interview 46, Misunderstood Text About Jesus Part 4, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Just to give you a little preview of what's coming up, this is, in fact, the end of our series on this subject, Misunderstood Text About Jesus. I really want to thank Bill Schlegel for spending so much time 
doing this and sitting in the hot seat as I pepper him with these commonly misunderstood verses. I have a couple of things coming up, interviews, uh, one from Calvin Chan, who lives in Toronto, but is from Hong Kong, and he talks about the uh, biblical Unitarian movement throughout Asia, and uh, I'm hoping also to line up another interview with Sam Ahn about the uh, the movement among Koreans, both in Korea and uh, among Koreans in the United States. So this is an exciting time in which we live, where this truth is really spreading far and wide. There are biblical Unitarian churches and fellowships and Bible study groups all over the world. I really believe God is doing something in our time. So, yeah, please do share this episode and other episodes on this subject that you think will be helpful to others and uh, refer people to these these interviews. I think Schlegel did a great job. He's articulate. He's easy to listen to, and yet he is informed on what scholars are saying on both sides of this issue. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.